Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 103 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates. I've been having fun with these restored episodes. I hope you guys just enjoyed Joel Jameson and Don Saladino. And I've got a really cool guest today, Dr. Nick Noabueze. But Dr. Nick prefers to be called the fittest doc, Dr. Nick, because as he said, uh, the last name trips people up. But uh, brother, yeah. it's great to have you on here today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate you inviting me on. And yeah, I, I tell my patients all the time, don't worry with the last name. You know, you can just call me, call me Nick for that reason. And then the other name that you referred to me by, just so we can clarify, I don't ask people to call me that. That's just my Instagram username. That's just a, that's just an Instagram handle thing, you know? Well, it works. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but uh, sure. just for people to, you know, cause I've had a lot of, you know, doctors on here, but most of them are PhDs, whereas you're actually a medical doctor, you're a board certified family medicine physician, and we're going to get a little bit more into this after about you're really big on, you know, getting patients involved in fitness, the nutrition side of stuff, less dependent on medication. Um, and you're also really devoted uh, CrossFit competitor, something that you're really passionate about. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily use the word competitor, I would say just more the word um, practitioner, practitioner. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm careful about the verbiage there, because um, if there's anything that I have learned, I've crossed it enough for maybe 13 years. And if there's anything that I've learned specifically, uh, it's that CrossFit competitors, they put an enormous amount of time into their craft, into their fitness. I mean, I, I, I work out at definitely one of the most competitive gyms, uh, in the area. You know, we've gone to the CrossFit games competitively as a team, and we sent individuals to the CrossFit games for the last few years. And I see them in the gym, Andrew, they're in the gym two to three to four hours a day, you know, eating, eating packet after packet of gummy bears and Welsh fruit snacks to just kind of keep the engine moving. So um, I'm the type of person uh, as a practitioner, I just go one hour a day. Um, you know, it's kind of like a uh, uh, kind of a chance to de-stress. And, and I definitely think there's, there's a lot of utility when it comes to metabolic health, when it comes to uh, overall health and kind of staying off medication. And, you know, I'm 38 years old, soon to be 39 years old, and I'm not on any medications. And I damn well intend to keep that up for as long as possible. Um, I, you know, I've had a number, and by a number, I mean, really scant, a scant number, uh, less than five patients in my life who I have seen in the uh, age ranges of in their 60s and in their 70s who are on no medications. And the one unifying factor between these scant patients that I see at this age who are on no medications is that they are very physically active and that they, they have been very physically active all throughout their lives. So I'm trying to be that anomaly. I'm trying to make it to 60, 70, 80, no medications. And the work to, to make that happen is, is, you know, right now. Yeah, I, man, I'm of the same attitude. I'm 44, no medications. And, you know, I work with a few, some of my clients are older adults. I got a couple of guys in the early seventies and they love, and you can tell the difference it makes the lifting fit active stuff for them. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I've got a more recent client. He's great. He's 55. And, you know, he has, his family has a history of diabetes. So he doesn't want to go on statins. And he never was a guy who really loved working out. He's known me for years, finally said, okay, let's commit to this. And he's found a, a love of fitness because I've created an environment for him that he wants to return to. And I, you know, I caught him coming in on his own one day, which of course was totally unheard of, but he's already noticing improvement in things like his blood pressure, his blood sugars. Uh, these are proven benefits. 
So absolutely. I guess there's a really good place to start because we know all this stuff as an industry. Everybody listening is going to be like, yeah, I know all this stuff. But yet sure. we still have this massive population walking around that would rather metaphorically or literally be given the easy option of the pill versus, you know, do the thing that they perceive to be hard. How do we, industry, you individually, how do we bridge that gap and how do we get more people to cross the aisle? Because our industry loves to argue about methodologies and Bakker CrossFit versus whatever, but that stuff really doesn't matter when most people don't have gym memberships. Most people don't participate in this lifestyle. And a lot of them have misconceptions or outright intimidated by this world. Yeah, I think, you know, ultimately, it, it, I would say, Andrew, it's because the realities of growing older, the realities of poor metabolic health are not known to some people. Um, I think that if one were to spend any amount of time in a hospital, they would see the reality of the day-to-day -day deplorable state of, of this country as it pertains to healthcare. Um, you have doctors and nurses uh, who have spent a good amount of time in clinics, have spent a good amount of time in hospitals. We see this day in and day out. We see people dying from heart disease. We see, you know, amputations from diabetes. We see the issues left and right. So it's very real to us. However, you have to keep in mind that it's essentially, that issue has essentially been siloed off from the general population unless you are unfortunate enough to have a family member who is very sick. And those are the people who I see who, who take the uh, initiative to come see me proactively, take the initiative to say, hey, Dr. Nick, I have, you know, my mother is in this precarious situation as it pertains to her health. And I see what she has to go through and I have to take care of her. And I don't want that to be me. Those are the people who see the very real effects of ignoring and taking their health for granted. Otherwise, unfortunately, people who have family members who aren't in destitute health conditions don't necessarily know okay, these are the risks of not taking care of yourself. So personally, I've always been, you know, even, even, outside, of, uh, even outside of this specific issue of health, I've always been a big fan of, because um, I did a lot of time in residency in nursing homes. And obviously when you're in nursing homes, you talk to older people who have been through everything that we've been through. And because they've been through that, they can give you sage. And I'm very precise with my vernacular with my with my words they they can literally give you sage advice uh and i think that if more people took it upon themselves to whether it's you know visiting more people in nursing homes visiting people in the hospital seeing the very real consequences of ignoring your health they would take it upon themselves to be very proactive and preventative uh focus so i'm a primary care doc so one of the things that one of the reasons I picked uh, primary care medicine and family medicine is because I didn't like the fact that other types of doctors, whether we're talking surgeons or, or, or whatever, are very reactive. There's an issue, they fix the issue, as opposed to being proactive. My, with my mindset, I've just always been, okay, why, are we, why don't we just get ahead of this, you know, and, and prevent it in, in the first place? So I think, you know, there would need to be some type of public 
public uh, health education platform and, and initiative to educate people on the very real effects of ignoring their health. And to be honest, if you think about it, the pandemic that just passed was a very real example of what happens to those who do not prioritize prevention. During the pandemic, Andrew, I posted on my Instagram, and I did. I never just post whimsically. I posted a um, research article, uh, a, a post that essentially centered on how the immune system is modulated by physical activity. Quite literally saying, people who work out consistently, whether it's lifting weights or, or walking or running, those people literally have more adept immune systems that are more resistant to resisting things like, like the cause of the pandemic. Uh, and I can absolutely tell you, I remember the comments on that post. There were a couple of people who were super staunchly resistant to believing me. And I'm like, I'm, I, it's not like I'm Joe Schmo over here. I'm a medical doctor telling you, and not just telling you, showing you the exact cellular, the, the exact uh, cellular lineage that is affected and upregulated when you exercise and how it affects your immune system. And people were super resistant to believe, oh, you're telling me that if I were just more in shape, I could resist the effects of this pandemic. And I'm like, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And so this bleeds into a whole bunch of stuff, and I want to handle this one delicately. Sure. I, I remember, especially in the first year of this stuff, and I, did, I don't go into this messaging, but any suggestion from fitness professionals that you know exercise, nutrition during all this stuff had any preventative benefits of you know negative outcomes of COVID was screamed at. You were demonic. You were absolutely malevolent if you even dared go here so i'll go i got a few things to, to go through with this one i know that there is a tribe an ideological tribe that doesn't help that grabs onto this stuff but pushes a whole bunch of other problematic narratives and that would be the right-wing stuff but we also have this far left ideology which is the one screaming about this stuff and again if someone listening you know identifies with one of these tribes a bit more Understand I'm trying to handle this with nuance, and let's be honest about the problems within these tribes. One of the problems with the, the more left-leaning tribe is also this messaging. It, it comes really from the, the more staunch, aggressive, health at any size community. And this whole idea that there is no relationship between obesity and long-term health comes. We now know, and I want, I want you to touch on this. We now know, well, hey, that's bullshit, okay? There's nuance. It's You can't just look at someone and talk about how healthy they are based on looking at them in a moment in time. Sure, we know that, we understand the nuance of that. And things like fat shaming also do not create positive outcomes. But it seems like our industry is no longer tolerating that, that a very dangerous ideological lie that there's no relationship between obesity and long-term health outcome. So there, and then this whole tribalistic thing. So I'll let you just kind of go with all that stuff, the problems with that stuff, and, and how do we as fitness professionals navigate that bullshit? Yeah, no, uh, what I was saying is that I follow, uh, someone I follow on Instagram who I followed for a while is Jordan Syed. And he makes a point of saying uh, in a lot of his posts that we shouldn't shame obese people, uh, uh, bigger people. And I completely agree with that. Could not agree with that more. I think that ultimately an even better way to say that is that it's not our job 
to judge anyone, whether we're talking about doctors like I am or healthcare practitioners or just the common everyday person. It's not our job to judge another human being. However, I do think that there's a distinct difference between judging somebody and calling something out for what it is, right? Um, and, and being very black and white and saying, this is what it is. I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying it's bad. Obviously, it's completely your prerogative. It's your body. Do with it as you will. However, that does not obviate uh the, the the truth that that does not that does not you know negate the truth so you know with that being said I'm, I'm a I absolutely agree with you I think that the health at every size movement uh, in as much as it comes from a good place of trying to make those who feel disenfranchised feel less so I completely understand that. And personally, I have an issue with literally anybody who is willing to go out of their way to judge somebody on their size or anything else, size, color, I don't care, their sex, that's irrelevant. However, I do think that when you're telling people that there is no relationship between their size and various health metrics, you're lying to them, especially when the objective data says otherwise. Um, metabolic health is something that I am a very big proponent of. And listen, I'm not saying everybody needs to be Arnold Schwarzenegger or needs to be somebody with as much muscle mass as you or me, but I'm a very big believer that muscle is quite literally the organ of vitality. And with that said, what everybody should be shooting for, what everybody's goal should be, is not only to obtain an optimal body composition, but to retain an optimal body composition for the rest of their lives. And, you know, before anybody thinks that, okay, this is simply a, an aesthetic pursuit, you need to realize that muscle is quite literally the largest tissue responsible for glucose homeostasis in the human body. What I mean by that is that it is much, much harder for somebody with an ideal body composition of muscle mass relative to fat mass. It is much easier for that person to adequately control their blood sugars over the course of their lives, which then has obvious effects on their insulin resistance or lack thereof. So the opposite of insulin resistance is insulin sensitivity. So when you, you know, keep all of that in mind, I don't think that it is safe to say, oh, you're truly healthy at every size. I, I don't think that that's safe to say. I think that it is safe to say absolutely that some people, you can follow, I, I for whatever reason, I've come across bigger people who have tried to lose weight and they think that because they've tried to lose weight and they failed that that must mean that this is how their genetics are this is this is the way it is they can't change that and i've always had an issue with that because if you actually uh look at genetics and and understand you know not just genetics but epigenetics and nutrigenomics uh, and kind of all the elements therein, you'll understand that genetics bracket phenotypic expression. And I've said this before, 
on my Instagram. And what I mean by that, your genetics only brackets, your phenotypic expression is that on the low end and on the high end, if you were to imagine the best possible version of you physically and the, the uh, least, the least, you know, uh, ideal version of you physically, that is what is bracketed. That, that is essentially the bounds of your genetics. Anywhere in the middle, you and your lifestyle and your decisions and your choices can place you anywhere on the spectrum. Let, let's use Arnold Schwarzenegger as a perfect example or any pro bodybuilder, sure. because it's the flip side sure. of it. If Arnold sure. had never discovered lifting weights, there's a very good bet that he would have been more muscular and stronger on average than most people. However, mm -hmm. he wouldn't have looked like the movie star, Mr. Olympia Arnold. He had to yes. find consistent strength training, be very devoted to it. We know that, you know, there's also an added component, which, you know, environmental steroids, which again, can push the limits of what your genetic ceiling is. But even, you know, the genetic ceiling still applies. It's just that steroids will push the boundaries of these sort of things. But either mm -hmm. way, he's someone who's probably come fairly close to maximizing in every capacity, what his genetic potential could have been to be a, a bodybuilder, muscular bodybuilder. Yeah, I would argue even that it isn't so much that steroids push your genetic ceiling. They simply maximize the, uh, the, th that range, that middle range. They maximize uh, you kind of towards the end, towards the extreme limits of your genetic ceiling. So they don't push your genetic ceiling. They just make you, they just get you to a place that much closer to your genetic ceiling. Uh, I think bringing up Arnold Schwarzenegger is a great example. Because so recently I just saw the movie Black Adam with The Rock. And I read an interview with The Rock afterward. And people, you know, the internet, people just talk, running their mouths. Somebody said, how come you're this big and this strong and blah, 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 but you don't have a six pack? And The Rock said something that I immediately thought about what I just said, that genetics uh, brackets your phenotypic expression. The Rock basically said, hey, listen, he's worked out since he was 20. You know, he's put on masks everywhere, but his abs, he simply it hasn't developed into, you know, what most people think about as a six pack or an eight pack. And I think you and I both know from our understanding of, 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 uh, anatomy and the rectus abdominis, which is the, the six pack, the eight pack, that it actually has tendinous intersections. And those tendinous intersections, if you look at the rock as big as he is and musk and, and as developed as he is from a muscular standpoint, he simply due to his genetics does not have those tendinous intersections and no amount of lifting weights will change that. So this is exactly what I'm talking about. Your genetics do not define where you are at any given time. They simply, they simply give you a, a ceiling on the low end and a ceiling on the high end that you must stay within. And you can't kind of, uh, um, you know, until we have the day where we can easily, you know, uh, <laughs> endeavor in the field of genetic uh, engineering and genetic editing. But for now, you can't change those things. So, you know, when people just blame their genetic or blame their size on their genetics and say, hey, I've tried this, I've tried that. I often tell them or, or ask them rather, do you truly think that out of all the different methods that are available that you have tried everything. And that's a test when I'm asking that, because that's actually a test of ego, right? Are they so egocentric that they truly believe I've tried everything? Anytime anyone in the history of the world has ever said, I've tried everything, 
They haven't tried everything. They've only tried the things that they are aware of. And oftentimes finding people who are a little bit more experienced, finding people who know more, finding people who may even be older can open a new perspective to them that they haven't considered that may very well be helpful when it comes to optimizing their body composition and improving their long-term health. So. So let's take this a little further. And is there anything else you think we can do? I mean, individually and as an industry to, to make a dent in this, because we're talking about genetics. I think one of the most easy illustrations is, you know, photos and imagery of people kind of 1970s and prior, you know, the prevalence mm -hmm. of obesity was, was you know, much, much, much lower. We know that there have been societal environmental changes. We know the, you know, ultra availability of relatively inexpensive, you know, high calorie food, hyper palatable food. We know that sure. our lifestyle is geared more and more towards modern conveniences and we're not necessarily as involuntarily active as we were. So what we're really sure. talking about is getting people to voluntarily be more active to upregulate calorie output. And we're trying to get people, because a lot of people uh, over consume calories. So we're trying to get people to voluntarily consume less. How do we do that? How do we do this on a bigger scale? I think it's actually, you know, is, this is a two-tiered approach that we need, right? I, obviously, like you mentioned, physical activity, upregulating that. And then I'm not necessarily the biggest proponent, Andrew, of cutting calories as opposed to eating more optimal calories, eating a more optimal macronutrient profile. Uh, but let's go back to your first question. How, you know, what do we do? I think a lot of this has to do, and, and I, don't wanna, I don't want to sound like I'm shooting myself in the foot, but far too many Americans uh, and too many people in this world take what their doctor says as gospel. And that can be good and that can be bad. How can that be bad? That can be bad when you go into a doctor who doesn't necessarily see the necessity, doesn't see the need, doesn't see the importance of working out, doesn't see the importance of lifting weights, isn't prioritizing and encouraging you to be active. Uh, and I speak, I say that as a doctor who literally every single patient, I don't care what they, what they come in complaining of, I prescribe an exercise. I, I literally um, have an exercise prescription for them. And I tell them, hey, listen, doesn't matter what you choose to do, if it's Pilates, F45, Orange Theory, hiking, running, walking, I want you to be physically active. And then I give them, uh, and then I go into details of the prescription. So I think that if more physicians, if more people in the healthcare space were very proactive about not simply telling their patients exercise more, like that's, that's, it's, that's way too vague. You need to be, you need to go into it with them, go into the details, go into the nuances, help them figure out if, if they're one of these people who find a lot of resistance, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I would enjoy. Then you need to give them options uh, and help them brainstorm. Um, and I have a, you know, a number of kind of different, uh, uh, um, approaches when, when a patient complains of that. So I think on one hand, like I said, right, healthcare practitioners need to do a better job of encouraging fitness and not just encouraging fitness, but also educating their patients on why I, I'm a big believer with my patients that if you, if you as a doctor can break things down in a simple enough way for the patient to understand why doing something 
benefits them, they will do it, it autonomously. They will they will endeavor down that path autonomously. Uh, so I not only tell my patients to exercise, I tell them why it's important, whether it's, you know, control of their blood sugar, the improvements in mood. For example, when I have patients who come in with anxiety and depression, one of the first things I ask them, tell me about your physical activity, right? Tell me about how much time you spend outside, right? I don't think the solution should be simply put them on Prozac, put them on an antidepressant medication. How about we look at different nuances of your lifestyle from your activity to your sleep, to your food, to your stress. Uh, and then essentially try to uh, kind of tweak things if possible, optimize things. And obviously if symptoms are still persistent, uh, then potentially we could consider medications. So I think on one hand, healthcare practitioners need to do a much better job of encouraging patients. And this is kind of the downside of like I said, this is a downside of patients just taking what their doctor says as gospel, because then if their doctor doesn't say something, because there we absolutely have an epidemic these days of doctors being overweight, being obese, being inactive. Back in the day, many more doctors used to be smokers. These days, thankfully, not as much. I remember in med school, I, I had a couple uh, attending doctors who were smokers, and that just blew my mind. And I know back in the 60s and 70s, doctors used to actually advertise for cigarette companies. So I'm glad that shift is moving over. What's I'll, up? I'll, I'll make a point. So, um, A, my mom listens to these and loves them. So hi, mom. Um, it's one of the reasons why I was <laughs> But uh, my grandfather, my mom's dad, uh, was a yeah. prominent doctor back where I'm originally from in St. John's, Newfoundland. He was a chief of staff and chief of radiology of a hospital and the associate dean of the med school. But I mean, he was a, I mean, that generation, he was a very aggressive smoker. I mean, four pack a day at one juncture in his life. And, you know, they didn't have the understanding the way things are right now, you know, and he ended up with quadruple bypass surgery and, you know, diabetes later in his life and some of the negative yeah. associated with that. So that yeah. made me think of that. Um, there's another <clears throat> component to this, and it also gets into the ideological stuff. And you said something that I very strongly believe in too, is I, I really do feel, and I'm comfortable saying this, that exercise is the best all around thing for improving mental health. Now that does not mean that I do not feel that feel uh, that therapy cannot be very beneficial. I also sure. feel that in certain cases, medication, and again, I'm not the medical doctor, but I, I want to hear your opinion on this to back it up. I train a cardiologist who we talk about these sort of things and he is comfortable saying exercise is therapy. And this is where I'm going to go. Every once in a while, I see a well-intentioned fitness professional, sometimes friends of mine, they do this, this platitude, this virtue signal to say, uh, you know, the gym is not therapy. Exercise is not therapy, which I find is pedantic nonsense. Because what we're doing is we're policing speech. I find that when people say the phrase, uh, the, the gym is my therapy, my workouts are my therapy, it's a figure of speech. It is just something that is positive for them. We don't need to police that statement. Um, we do know the overwhelming benefits of it. And quite frankly, a gym membership, this is, this is one of these things, a gym membership, sure, it costs something, but to actually have a therapist and to be able to go to that on a regular basis is astonishingly expensive. And that's not a criticism of that world. It's just to say that it's not particularly accessible to most people. There's significant barriers to it. So we have to employ the benefits that we have. And I don't think it's a exercise versus, you know, other mental health interventions. It's do, 
go nuts with exercise. See if that actually fixes most of the problems and then get access to the other stuff and improve access to these other things for the people who actually need it. Your thoughts. Absolutely agree. Could not agree more. I think that uh, especially what you said that these are not adversarial. We're not saying exercise in replacement of therapy, exercise in replacement of antidepressant medications. Um, what we're instead saying, or what I'm saying is that I, listen, most primary care doctors, myself included, prioritize conservative management over less conservative management initially. So if somebody comes in, hey, Dr. Nick, I have this shoulder pain, right? I would do, um, uh, I would essentially, you know, do a uh, physical exam on them. And in the event that I see something suspicious, I'm not going to send you directly to a surgeon. I would instead employ the more conservative management, sending you to physical therapy and, you know, do, put in the work, but this, is, this isn't somebody cutting into your body. Now, by the same token and with the same mindset, I believe literally you and I are espousing the same thing. When somebody has an issue with depression, anxiety, any other mood disorder, yes, you can absolutely choose therapy. In fact, I would argue that therapy is more conservative, is a more conservative intervention than you starting on a medication. However, the more conservative change, even before therapy, is exercise. And <clears throat> along that vein is optimizing your sleep, right? I can't tell you how many people are sleep deprived and have insomnia and have persistent sleep issues. And if you were to put some type of objective sleep device on them, they sleep three to four hours a night and then they come to you, why am I depressed? You're depressed because you're quite literally, you're, you know, your body's most efficacious recovery method, sleep is being skipped over. So I, you know, I think when somebody comes in with an issue like this, yes, things like exercise, things like sleep, Things like, what are you eating? Are you eating nothing but McDonald's and nothing but French fries and nothing but just garbage fast food every day, yet you expect to feel at your best? It's paradoxical and it doesn't make sense. So it isn't so much that we are over here endorsing an adversarial relationship between exercise and therapy or exercise and medication. What we're saying instead is that you know, number one, these can be used synergistically. You can use, I actually have used them together to great effects after the fact, Andrew. So what I mean by that is a patient tells me they're on, um, you know, some, some antidepressant medication and, hey, Dr. Nick, I'd really like to get off this medication. Okay, so let's, I, what I'd like you to do is improve this, 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 and this. And then all of a sudden, the next time that we assess their mood disorder, they're noting improvements. And then what does that mean? That means that I can now bump down their dosage of medication. They continue to do the lifestyle interventions that we mentioned and continue to experience improvement. And now I can bump down the dosage even more to potentially even getting them off the medication. So we're not over here saying this needs to be an adversarial relationship. It's either or. That's nonsense. You can have both. But in the event that somebody first comes in complaining of the issue, I will always, always, always prefer and advocate for conservative management before less conservative management. I'm going to also throw another lens through which we can look at some of the stuff. I'm currently reading a fascinating book called The Status Game by an author named William Storr. 
And I've read a couple of his other books and he's a smart guy, a lot of examples. And we as humans, we play status games. We were very wired to understand status from child, from being a kid all the way through. And it, it can also be a very dark thing to see everything through. So that's not the answer. But what I've come to realize is when we get people who exist in ideal, humans like to gather in tribal mentalities, they do. And we notice that extremism exists within, within fitness, within all kinds of different things. We certainly know it's political. And I tend to, personally, I don't like the extremes of any of these sort of things. And I now understand one of their dynamics. The, the people, the talking heads of these extremes, they're playing a status game because in a lot of cases, they've not, you hold a certain status in, through this lens as a medical sure. doctor, you do, right? And people treat sure. you in a sure. certain way because of that. So what we have is we have individuals who have been unable to stand out or really accomplish anything meaningful in, in career or whatever, who seek status, but they figured out that they can exist within and earn status within these ideological tribes. And they become people who police what other people say, and they become the loudest voices. And yeah. the book actually gets into it. And it's and anyone who's interested in stuff, read this book, because it's actually quite fascinating. And then you start to recognize what these people are. And usually the most aggressive, ardent people who police these extremist narratives. And again, it's it's the people who scream if you even suggest that there's a relationship between long, you know, long-term health outcomes and obesity or you know, if you dare say something like, oh, the gym is my therapy, et cetera, then they have to come in and they get fired up and they wind up their followers and they, they engage in, in shame-based tactics. This is malevolent shit. And I've recognized that these behaviors are malevolent and I absolutely do not tolerate or deal with these kinds of people. I keep them at arm's length. You also have to, sure. you also have to be thoughtful with your messaging too, because I, I also don't believe in just a free-for-all for thoughtless, insensitive garbage that comes out the other end. Like I said, both extremes are really bad. But if you recognize these people as playing status games, and they've achieved status within this ideological tribal entity, we can kind of dismiss them for what they are, right? Mm -hmm. The other danger is understanding that because they fight with each other, the extremes fight, then there's threats to their status. And when people's status is threatened, and again, this book goes into great detail, this is where, you know, in extreme cases, school shooters and serial killers and other like suicides and other things when you rob someone of their status. So we're actually understanding this stuff can actually be very valuable in dealing with the more extreme nature that people seem to find in almost every walk of life these days. Oh, no, I could not have said that. Could not have said that better. It's interesting. I obviously haven't read that book, but... <laughs> What you have mentioned, I've seen. You see that not just in fitness. You see that in. Uh, you see it all over the place. You even saw it in, in you know, with the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. If you if you sit back and think about it, the loudest voices screaming on both sides of that. Absolutely, mm -hmm. actually, that's one of the first mm -hmm. things I recognized as this was explained in this book. Is those people that whether they're screaming at you for not wearing a mask or killing grandma, or if it's the again the other side, because I don't want anyone to think like I am really really moderate with this time i'm nuanced i'm issue by issue i do not there's a great quote from naval ravikant in his book um uh, the almanac of naval ravikant and he said he stopped thinking in terms of isms or belonging to tribes when he noticed that he was starting to defend some of the beliefs of the tribe that he didn't actually believe in and if you ever mm -hmm. notice whether it's political or any sort of ideological tribe 
the proponents of that tribe, they all hold all of the same opinions of the tribe, which tells me none of these people have a single independent nuanced thought issue by issue, which is why I- It's a, it's a hive mind. It's a hive mind. Hive mind, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I hope at least this is something that wakes people up to recognize this because we have some really bad faith actors, both within our industry and the broader world. And I know our industry sometimes gets you know, very fearful of these bullies. There are some known bullies in our world and I've had some negative encounters with them, one recently. And I just blocked this individual. And I said, no, fuck this shit. I'm not, this is ridiculous. And, and you move on because I'm, I'm actually here to help people. I wanna support our industry. I hope this has been an interesting and nuanced conversation for, for everybody listening. I wanted to also ask you a bit about you know, your own work. You, know, you had told me that you have a metabolic health body comp business. So I know we've talked about that in a broader sense, but t- tell me more about your work, what you do. Yeah, so I think I told you a little bit about it when I met you in New York, but so I am a primary care physician. I, I see patients uh, all over the United States uh, through a company called Lemonade associated with SteadyMD. However, one thing that I've noticed being a doctor is that all too often people come to you, like we talked about earlier, people come to you from a reactive standpoint. They have something going on, whether it's an infection, whether it's a skin issue uh, or some other complaints, and they it's a very reactionary thing. However, if you look at the top seven out of 10 killers in this country, you know, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, et cetera. These are all diseases of metabolic origin of meta. So essentially with metabolic health uh, deranged, these diseases become much more prevalent and they're associated with and, and play as a risk factor. So essentially I, because I realized that, you know, I was being constrained by location uh, and where I was licensed to practice medicine, because obviously I'm sure you know, like many people do, if a doctor doesn't have a license to practice medicine somewhere, they cannot practice medicine there. Uh, I realized, hey, you know, if I start a program where I'm specifically focused on improving metabolic health, and then all this, all the uh, conditions that uh, not only improve secondary to that, and, and I, I'm very careful with my words here, you can quite literally improve blood pressure, high cholesterol, blood sugar, any number of parameters through improving your metabolic health, and then and then secondarily prevent a disease, and then on a tertiary standpoint, improve body composition. So, you know, whenever you see somebody walking around who has what we all tend to colloquially term a spare tire. So they quite literally have a lot of central adiposity, central fat. Uh, These are unfortunately the people who you can look at and with, you know, very little, uh, very little, you know, resistance in your in your diagnosis, you can peg them as being insulin resistant, uh, to some extent, and then needing to optimize their metabolic health. So essentially, that's what I did. I just, you know, I started a program where I my furthest client right now lives in the Netherlands, so just put them on medication. So uh, but unfortunately, like most doctors do, when they say, hey, want to improve your blood pressure, want to improve your cholesterol, the first thing that pops ahead because of the 
you know, the, the pharmacological industry here, and especially that's um, prevalent in the United States, the first thing that pops to their head are medications. So this gentleman reached out to me and we've been improving his metabolic health uh, for the last uh, month and a half. And he's already seen dramatic improvement. And I am um, quite confident about that by the time that he gets his labs done with his doctor in December, he will have a an improvement notable enough to completely shelf that idea of having to put him on statin. So I think that ultimately I I like this work even more than being a doctor for the for one main reason. I seem to find, and I've noticed this since med school, I seem to find some type of um it's it's cathartic to me to uh prevent an issue as opposed to just trying to catch up with it after the fact and trying to cure it and trying to, and I just don't like the idea of being reactive. Um, and it's for the same reason that you at your age and me at my age, we're on no medications. We are quite literally, if you look statistically, we are quite literally anomalies at our age. And, you know, that, sure, some people can say that the, the, <laughs> we had this discussion about genetics earlier. Some people can push that all towards genetics. And unfortunately, you know, what I found with people who do this is they are trying to find any mental explanation possible so that they don't have to put in the work so that they don't have to make a change and blaming genetics and saying, Oh, Andrew and Dr. Nick have great genetics. That's why they're not on any medications. That's why they look, you know, the way they do when in reality, you know, I'm sure you, you do. Um, but I know for sure I make very concerted decisions on a day to day, on a day to day basis that, um, you know, not only keep me looking how I am, but actually have led to improvement at the very beginning of this year. I was not, I had just kind of, I was just not in a good place and was doing a bunch of things that I know I shouldn't have done. And I was watching my weight increase, my waistline increase. I got up to almost a 37 inch waist and 17% body fat. And, you know, ultimately, Andrew, as we spoke about earlier, the greatest motivator to not let something like that get out of control is when you see patients. So you've seen sickness, you've seen death, you've seen morbidity, You've seen a, a, a decrease in quality of life when people ignore these things. You actually have experience with the end results of your current poor decisions. That is more than enough impetus, more than enough motivation to change your way. So, you know, beginning of the year, January 1st, until now, I have completely essentially focus on my own metabolic health to the extent where at the beginning of the year I was needing, um, I was just starting to get into uh, leave elevated blood pressure and get into stage one hypertension. And I saw that and I was like, nope, 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 I'm not, I'm not, not getting into a place where I need blood pressure medication. So I reversed it. And, you know, I'm at the place where I am now with improved body composition, improved metabolic health because of the changes that I've made. So I think that, you know, when people want to focus on prevention, they, they make certain decisions and, you know, they reach out to people like me and, and I help them do that. People though, who don't necessarily care about uh, prevention or don't see the utility in it, unfortunately, and it sucks to say this, and I don't want to sound crass or like I'm being mean, but those people unfortunately need to 
let reality bite them in the ass and it will come sooner rather than later. And the reason why I'm confident it will come is because none of us is a, is a constant system. All of us are systems in flux. Every single day, various parameters change in your body. Hormones, electrolytes, uh, you know, fat deposition, muscle, muscle either being gained or lost, depending on your on your choices. The, our system, our, our bodies are systems in flux. So this isn't the type of thing that you can ignore. This is a type of thing that you have to realize, okay, my body's always changing. I can either make a change in the positive sense for me and for health prevention, or I can let it change in the negative sense and then regret it in the future. You are in phenomenal shape. A lot of muscle, you're ripped. When I met you in New York, I mean, that shone through. You uh, you spoke at, you were the, I think the opening presentation at uh, our friend Kenny Santucci's uh, Strong New York. And I was, I was speaking as part of a panel later in the afternoon. And I, I observed you prioritizing certain things. You know, you had your, your blender shaker with you and we were talking about, <laughs> and, you know, it's not bringing like boiled chicken to a wedding or anything, but it's, yeah, yeah. You, know, you were conscientious of this, even the environment you were in. Let's spend a couple of minutes also talking about, you know, your, your CrossFit passion and sure. that came up with this is how you're also not someone you've never once said through this entire interview that, Hey, I prescribe CrossFit to my clients. So you can separate your personal outlet for fitness from your recommendations that need to be, you very literally uh, alluded to, you know, finding the right outlet for each person. So just some thoughts on that, that divide separating them. Yeah, I think that ultimately everybody has the thing that they enjoy most. You know, when I have patients who are like, yeah, Dr. Nick, I just don't know what I want to do from a physical standpoint in terms of activity. I often hearken back to their childhood. I think when you ask people, what did you enjoy doing when you were a kid? Skipping rope on the playground? Uh, did you did you enjoy recess or were you kind of more um, you know, reserved into yourself during recess? Did you were there any sports that you played? You know, once you kind of delve and find out those things, then you can make appropriate recommendations. Um, now, when I have patients who directly ask me about CrossFit, I tell them it is, in my opinion, right, the most time efficient and therefore efficacious uh, modality that exists. However, it is not the only modality that exists. And what I mean by that is, you know, it is much better even, okay, let's, let's bring up running. So running is something that keeps people in shape. But if you notice, Andrew, and I'm sure you've noticed, because I've noticed this, people who do nothing but running, they have a very specific type of body habitus, right? They have this body habitus more often than not of being skinny fat, um, and not necessarily having a lot of mass. And if you were to think about it, and we don't have enough time to get into it. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually going to make probably an Instagram uh, series of posts about why running, unfortunately, makes you skinny fat. But compare somebody who's a runner versus somebody who runs and lifts weights, or somebody who's a sprinter, and then lifts weights when they're not sprinting, right? They have they have uh, much more muscle mass, not to the extent of a bodybuilder. I, I don't have the, I don't have muscle mass to the extent of a bodybuilder, but I think that I don't necessarily think that should be anybody's goal, but I do think that everybody's goal should be optimizing their specific 
uh, and personal ratio of muscle mass to, to body fat. So, you know, whether that's CrossFit, whether that's Pilates, whether that's Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting, whatever you want to do, do it. But, you know, I do think that um, all of us should be mindful, you know, even at 38, I'm very mindful, and this is going to sound morbid, but I'm very mindful of the fact that I'm going to die one day. All of us are going to die one day. What we should be doing is trying to maximize that amount of time of our lives that we spend healthy, that we can spend with our family, that we can spend with our friends, that we can spend out of a hospital bed or out of a nursing bed. But because all of us are going to die one day, we all have a certain amount of time. So to me, the thing that is most valuable isn't money, isn't anything. The thing that's most valuable is time. And in my opinion, if time is a thing that is most valuable, then why would you waste your time doing anything less than the most efficient training modality that you can find, essentially literally the most bang for your buck so that you can spend the rest of your, so that I don't have to spend two or three hours in the gym getting the same results, right? I mean, I'm quite literally a medical doctor who has no competitive aspirations in CrossFit or otherwise, who can deadlift 600 pounds, back squat over 500 pounds, bench press over 360 pounds, you know, snatch almost 300 pounds. Essentially, what I'm trying to get at is the only reason I can do these things isn't because I put concerted and focused hours of my day effort into trying for three to four hours a day. It's simply because I found something that was efficient. I spent one hour a day doing it. And then I was consistent over, over, you know, uh, what, 13 years of it so far. So, and, and consistent only with the, with the mindset of, of staying healthy. So I think that, you know, ultimately whatever anybody chooses to do, if they can, uh, if they can stay consistent and stay persistent with it over many, many years, and then uh, I would always, always, always encourage people being very outcome, um, outcome oriented. So whatever training modality that you are doing, look at its results. Look at how it's changing you. Are these changes that you like and that you're appreciative of? Or is it resulting in an outcome that you do not like and you are not appreciative of. And if that is the case, then why are you still choosing to do it instead of investigating another training modality that could possibly get you the results that you want? So, you know, ultimately that's that's kind of how I feel about that. That's great insight. <clears throat> so there's a lot of stuff here. You're going to be a really great resource. And and I when we met, I'd also, you know, mentioned Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, who's a friend of the either and he's that he was a guest on the podcast a very long time ago. And you guys are that, you know, that upstream preventative medicine mindset, uh, but providing care, you know, at all stages for the people who it's appropriate to. But I like the idea of more fitness professionals knowing who you are, following your social media, diving into what you're doing. And I hope I would love people to message me who've listened to this about kind of some of the stuff we talked about and sort of the nuance and often the frustration of talking about certain themes and how to navigate this stuff, which can easily send people into, well, I'm not even going to talk about that because I'm going to have to deal with the zealots and, and the tribal assholes who like to police what mm -hmm. we say. Mm -hmm. I think it's always wise to be thoughtful about how, how your messaging comes across, right? But anyway, tell people where they can find you and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, so uh, the primary place you can find me, I, I have an account on all these different social media platforms, but I'm not active on 
any one of them except Instagram, really. Um, I'm trying to change that. Uh, but, you know, obviously, social media isn't my priority. My priority is taking care of my patients and then my clients, my my metabolic health clients. So, uh, but you can find me on uh, the uh, Instagram at the fittest doc, all one word, the fittest doc. And um, yeah, send me a message. Uh, I will be very honest in telling you that I get a lot of messages and I try to respond to them all. Sometimes I do miss some. So if you send me a message and I do not respond, please uh, be persistent. Uh, you, you won't be bothering me if I technically didn't read your first message. So be persistent, <laughs> <laughs> be persistent layer it on, uh, and I will absolutely get to you. And um, yeah, I, I definitely appreciate, you know, your time and, and meeting you in New York. And, you know, like, I think, I think the great thing about strong New York, uh, you know, that Kenny put together, Andrew, is that it brought together so many of us that were very like-minded, you know? Uh, so it's pretty it incredible, man. And, unbelievable of it. Just absolutely. Yeah. You know, I met Kenny uh, last year at Luca Hosevar's event. And Luca was also one of the speakers at this one. And nice. you know, invited me to come down. And I, I got to meet some people who I knew from the internet, like David Ote, or to hang out with people like Luca, Nick Lamb, um, Pat Davidson, who I knew from my travels before. And I constantly, people listening probably get tired of how much I talk about the benefit of traveling and attending these things. And, and I've been trying to show people, like, if one of your ambitions is to get into a position where you are educating more of an authority within the space, then traveling to these sort of things is the linchpin to it. It's the key. You have to work really hard on various aspects of your career. And I'm going to have a presentation on this particular topic. I'm going to probably do the same presentation or a very, very similar one, both at what's already been announced, the FitBiz Mastermind 4.0. That one's uh, first weekend of December. I think it's the second through the fourth. And that's my my friends Jordan uh, Duggar and Aaron Demon are organizing it. And then so Lane Norton, Jordan Syatt, and the Hormoses are some of the other speakers in this one. That's nuts. But it was just announced today, the official lineup for uh, Raise the Bar 2023, Dallas, Texas, 24 through 26. You saw that post. And mm -hmm. looking at that, and that's got Don Saladino and John Goodman and Luca Hosevar and Molly Galbraith, Tony Gentlecore. There is a massive crazy list. Jordan Syatt's in it. Uh, go to my social media. It's on my Instagram. If you have questions about it, I went to this thing last year. It was one of the best events I've ever attended. Derek and Nick do a really great job with it. So I'm going to be pushing it a whole lot. I hope I'll see a lot of people there. And Nick, thank you, my friend, for coming on. I appreciate yeah. it. We'll chat off Absolutely. for a second. And for everybody else listening, sure. let's say you, you know, you're finding Nick for the first time. Go follow him. Please check out what he's doing. And if you found me through Nick's media, take a walk through my recent episode. Scroll back a little bit. There's a lot of them. And you're going to see a lot of people that you like look up to you're probably going to, want to check out some of these other episodes and maybe i'll uh, earn a subscribe from you guys so thank you so